I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. I am really, really excited about today's guest for our podcast. Today, we have Kate Funk, who is a licensed therapist who has recovered from both an eating disorder and substance abuse. I think the reason why I like this episode so much is that Kate's message is powerful, yet in a very quiet way. I think often clients, or I've often heard clients say to me, I'll recover when, and then put in whatever you want to end that sentence. When I hit rock bottom, when I reach this certain goal, when I get into college, when I get married. Unfortunately, people don't always make it to those whens that they were thinking about because the eating disorder can take your life before ever getting there. What is so beautiful about Kate's story is a moment of clarity when she said to herself, I'm not accepting that this is as good as life is gonna get. I don't want to accept that life is not gonna get any better. It's as big and as simple as that. So this is a really beautiful episode and I want everyone to listen to all the things that Kate has to offer. We do talk about substance abuse and eating disorders and the complexities of recovering from both. We talk about owning who you are. We talk about finding purpose and meaning. And really that started for Kate when she got out of her eating disorder mind long enough for that clarity of no longer accepting that this is as good as life gets. All right, everyone. I'm really excited. I hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I had recording it. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am really happy to introduce the next guest. Her name is Kate Funk. She is an LMFT, which is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And Kate, first, I would like to say hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm welcomed to be here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Great. Great. So glad to have you. So Kate is here. She's going to talk about her own wisdom of going through the recovery process and, you know, all the good stuff that we talk about. Kate and I have a little bit of a history together, meaning we both worked at the same, not at the same physical facility, but Kate did work at a Montanito residential program when I was also working at one many years ago. So we definitely have that beautiful connection and I'm super psyched to have you on the podcast. So Kate, can you tell us a little bit maybe about your practice and what you're doing now? You no longer work in treatment programs and you're now working for yourself? Yeah, so I um, left Montanito um, this past year and opened my own private practice. I'm currently located right outside of Houston, Texas. Um, and I particularly work with clients with eating disorders, but I also have a, a kind of a niche in addiction treatment as well. Um, so I often get the clients that kind of struggle with both of those issues and kind of across the age range, I've had a lot, it's interesting. I just recently moved to Texas and and a lot of my clients have been 
in, I would say, 30 and beyond, which is interesting because before I had seen a lot more younger clients. So I've been kind of working like maybe 20 and up currently. I love that you say that because I've also been getting clients that are more in midlife. And first of all, it just made me think of this and, and I'm just sort of, you know, creating this thought as we're talking. I know, so I'm 50 and I had my eating disorder 30 years ago and there was no treatment centers out there back then. I'm wondering if what we're seeing is a population of people that had their eating disorder when, and by the way, let me take a step back. There were facilities, there was just very, very little accessibility. So I want I just did want to correct what I was saying, but I'm wondering if what we're seeing is this rush of people that have unfortunately been suffering for 30 odd years and have never gotten the treatment that they really, really needed. I just thought of that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I, I think you're right. Definitely. I think in um, metropolitan areas too, like there can be more treatment options, but I think accessibility is a huge issue and um, potential. a lot of my clients are, are currently coming in without insurance or with Medicare insurance, which is really hard to find treatment for eating disorders. So yeah. I'd also love to hear you talk a little bit about the comorbidity of substance abuse and eating disorders, because that's complicated for a, a number of reasons. First of all, I know that when I worked in residential, somebody had to be sober in order to come into treatment. Not always an easy task, right? And and when I say sober, I mean from alcohol, drugs, all substances. And what often happens is it's like whack-a-mole. So you reduce the behaviors of the substances and then it increases the eating disorder behaviors, decrease the eating disorder behaviors and substance abuse comes right back up. Anything you can say to that? Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I'm recovered obviously, and, um, drugs and alcohol were a part of my story. And, and that's exactly what happened with me is that I got better with my eating disorder. And then I kind of fell into that world. Um, and then once I got better from that world, the eating disorder kind of came back with a vengeance as well. So, and I think with clients and in terms of treatment as well, it's really hard to find treatment that can work well with both pieces. Um, and that was something, yeah, um, that we had definitely experienced working in residential. Um, so I think one thing that I'm definitely trying to do is help people see how their, their substance abuse or their food might be an issue earlier on, because I think that a lot of times people start using those behaviors when they're recovering from one thing or the other. Um, and then I'm starting to see, oh, you're, you're sober, but you're going on X mile runs every day, or, oh, your eating disorder is better, but you're drinking a lot. So kind of looking at how that, that plays out. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. I'm wondering if you always believed that recovery was possible for you between substance abuse and the eating disorder, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah. So I think that that is something that I'm really passionate about as a provider, but also just as a human that for me, when I, I went to treatment when I was 17 and it was in 2005. So um, back then where I went, like recovered was not taught to us. Like I did not know that you could be recovered and coming from a 12 step program, um, recovery always being a thing. And so I really, I really thought that this was it. And I remember this one group I sat in, in my own treatment where I was like, I guess I should just buy some nice pajamas. Cause I guess this is going to be my life. Like treatment is going to be my life. Um, so I am thrilled to be able to sit here and say that I believe in, yeah, in being recovered and, and having a, a substantial time sober, like being able to hold that as well. By the way, I love that your way of looking at being in treatment for the, your whole life is from the kind of pajamas that you wear. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> that's what happens. 
people walk around and I don't mean like fully in their pajamas, but you wear like the t-shirt and the pajama bottoms and you're like, yeah, I better get a whole set of pajamas for this. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that was trying to get the uniform down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is hysterical. So what do you think motivated you then? Instead of, because I also want to point out you're not the first person to sit back and say, well, this is as good as it gets. The difference is one person says, this is as good as it gets, and I'm going to accept that. And someone else says, I don't accept this. It's got to be better. What motivated you? Oh, it's such a good question. And sometimes when I'm sitting across from clients, I just like, I take a minute and I just try to go there and, and like, feed the client whatever wisdom I can think of from that time um, because I think that it is kind of a miracle that I was able to find that side where I said like this isn't working for me this isn't okay for me so my favorite motivation story and I always would tell this when I was working in treatment was a uh, the equivalent of a recovery coach at this facility said to me um, that she had gone out and bought shoes that weekend at Banana Republic I, oh, I went out with friends you got shoes Banana Republic and for me, in my very small, um, rigid, terrified life, the thought of going out and buying shoes was Disney World for me. Like, that was something that was never going to happen. The fact that she even said that, I was like, yeah, right. Like, you just go out and enjoy your life. Like, yeah, right. And I wanted to be able to go out and enjoy my life. And I, I thought about that story. and so simple, so basic for so long and really wanted to be able to just enjoy my life. And so I think that was like the first seed of motivation that I had was just to be able to enjoy things and like do normal things without my eating disorder or my addiction later on becoming um, so like demanding of my time and my energy and my life. And so like just being normal was really the, the original motivator. <laughs> By the way, that's, what being recovered is, is moving towards quote unquote normalcy or balance. I'm going to use the word balance. Yeah. It's a better word. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when people say, you know, I don't know what I'm recovering to. I don't know if I'm recovering to, you know, getting married or being a superstar. Or be, I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's bring it down. I want you to think about recovering to feeling grounded to being balanced. Everything else comes after, but first we need to get the basics. And those basics are huge for somebody with an eating disorder. That reminds me, your story reminds me when I was in my, gosh, everything is just coming full circle. I'm just thinking about this. So when I was in my eating disorder, it was 30 years ago, I was living in downtown Boston, kind of in the same area I am now. And I was going to Emerson College, which is in the same area I am now. And I remember sitting at an outdoor cafe, which is now, and it probably was back then too, Aubon Payne, which is on the same block as my outpatient center now. And I think that's funny because I moved all the way to the other side of the country for 17 years. And now I'm back on the same block where I have all these memories. And I was sitting at Aubon Payne, and of course I was having my coffee because that's the only thing I would allow myself to have. Um, in fact, I was proud of myself because I put a little bit of cream in it and I was like, oh, this is a good day. I'm like really pushing, you know, testing myself. And I remember seeing two women walking down the street, probably my age or a little bit older, and they were laughing and they were talking. And one of the women was holding a single size serving of potato chips, probably came with her lunch. And they're walking and she's just eating it and they're smiling and she's eating it without a care. And I kept staring at them thinking, how are they doing this? Mm -hmm. How is she? just nonchalantly, just eating a bag of potato chips. She's not counting how many. She's not going to, you know, like I thought, is she going to go home and cry? Because I always cried when I was in my eating. Is she going to go home and cry after this? But I also think it wasn't just this 
as in the potato chips. It was this as in life. How did it look like life seemed so normal to them? We also know, we have no idea what goes on behind closed doors, but that's what I, I, I thought, how do you have friendships like that? How do you just walk down the street and have a conversation? What are they even talking about? I don't understand this. Those are vivid, vivid memories in my mind. And that's what I thought of when you, when you were talking about that. Just, yeah, I just want to go buy a pair of shoes. Oh, okay, the little things. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Like, I, and I think that a lot of times when a client comes in, you're right. Like, they can get really worried about, like, well, how am I going to get married, or how am I going to find retirement, or how like these very large, far, far away things. When in reality, like those basics, being able to eat a bag of chips and and hang out with your friends, or being able to go shopping and not freak out, or whatever it is, like those basic life things are so important and so valuable and, and taken for granted so much. So I agree. What do you use now? So I imagine listeners are saying, okay, Kate used an eating disorder. She used substance abuse. So went to some pretty far extremes to, to not have to navigate through issues. How do you do it now? How do you navigate through life? issues? Yeah. And I think this is a good question because, because often I think people think like, oh, recovery means that they're perfect now. Nothing's wrong with them. They're fine. And, and that's so not true. Like things happen and and life happens and, and life can be really challenging. And I think for me, it's going back to those really basic coping skills that I used early on in recovery of, I'm a big journaler. I like to write. So journaling is one thing I definitely use. I'm an artist. So I use a lot of art and then like communication and, and being able to really connect and have those like soul moments with others is the way that I, I find, um, like grounding and can kind of refill myself emotionally. I find that if I'm not doing those things for a prolonged period of time, I'm kind of avoiding something or not really realizing what's going on. So I still have to actively work to kind of process things. By the way, Being recovered doesn't mean that you don't think to yourself, wait a minute, I'm not using certain life skills, which means I'm avoiding something. That's being recovered. You have enough insight to say, you know what I usually do when I'm feeling stressed? I do artwork or I journal and I'm not doing it now. I think people also think that once you're recovered, you don't need to pull from those resources. That's how you stay recovered. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm an emotionally avoidant human. Like I can tell you all of the war stories of my life, easy, rattle them off, no problem. But to sit and to feel those feelings is just not something that naturally happens for me. So I actively have to work to feel those things and work through them. So I agree with you. It's it's a process and, and learning how you deal with things. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, or I wonder, because one of the things that you and I were just chatting about before we got on for the recording was being yourself. You were commenting that you heard on the first podcast, I always felt like I was too much, too loud, too, sometimes too quiet, too, too funny, too, not enough. Like I, and I punished myself for those qualities that now as a recovered person, I embrace. So say a little bit about owning who you are as a way of navigating through issues, because that's how we get through life. Yeah, I think this is such a big part of my story and a big part of work I do with clients too um, is kind of owning their too muchness. And so from a very young age, I always tell the story. Like I remember um, like, I was just thinking about this the other day, like for a project for school, like I wouldn't just do the project. I would make a production and it would be like, a, a, I would make a musical and I would write my own lyrics and I would have my own like costumes and make, like, I couldn't just do something like, Oh, write a paper. Like it was never like that for me. And, and I would wear like, 
crazy. Like I would, my favorite color was red and I would wear all red and I was very dramatic and very loud. And, um, those things as a kid, you know, you get pointed out as kind of the weird one or the loud one or the whatever one. And, and I think that I didn't necessarily get teased for those things, but I noticed that they were different. And I noticed that that was, not the way everyone else was. And so as I got older and like in, in junior high and high school, I really started to try to conform to fit in. And that's really where my eating disorder took off um, for sure. That is one of the seeds of an eating disorder, trying to fit in or conform because you don't think you do. And if you're different, different is wrong. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... Um, even as a therapist, I was just thinking about this before we came on, like I, my first job out of graduate school, I remember the woman that was my supervisor was very like cutthroat and rigid and like things have to be this way. And I, I quit after two months. And I remember being like, am I going to be a therapist? Like, I can't do this. Like, if this is what healing people looks like, like, I don't want to be involved. Um, and it wasn't until I started actually reading like Carolyn Costin's work and, and really realizing what recovered was and what um, a soul self was and, and meeting people like you actually and seeing people just be themselves. I was really empowered to step into that in my own life. Like I didn't have to be this professional. I could be myself and professional too, but, but in my own way. You and I, it was years ago that we met, right? That mm -hmm. was probably three or four years ago. That sounds right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, time goes by really quickly. I can't it even believe does. I feel like I was in a totally different life three or four years ago. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the other thing. And I'm just sort of thinking of this off the top of my head. There are times when in an eating disorder, we're so focused on the future, we can't stay in the present moment. And then there are times when we're so obsessed with the present moment that we lose sight of the future. By the way, I don't remember what I ate four years ago when you and I met at a training for trauma. Agreed. Me neither. <laughs> I don't remember what my weight was. I, I don't remember any of that. And sometimes clients get too stuck in the moment and they forget, is this what you're working towards, towards the future? It's not going to get you where you think you want to be. That's another thing you and I talked about before the podcast. I, everything I am now is everything I ever dreamed of prior to being in the eating disorder or while I was in the eating disorder, all I wanted was actually who I am today and I've been recovered for 30 years. So obviously I was going down the wrong path to get what I really wanted. What were your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think my eating disorder promised me that I would be more confident if I was at a certain weight, that I would have better relationships at a certain weight, that I would find my purpose and my meaning if I looked a certain way. And it's so sad to me that that was what I was working towards in, in an eating disorder because an eating disorder robs you of all those things. It rips all of those things from your, from your grasp. Um, and you're like holding onto them, hoping that they get better or that they come back and they're, they're just deteriorate. Um, and in recovery and in recovery, like the seeds of those things are planted. Like I started to to reconnect with people. I was very isolative in my eating disorder. I started to um, find confidence and like, oh, like I'm, my friend likes me. So that, that kind of helps me find confidence or, oh, like that art piece I made was really cool. Like that makes me feel confident. Um, but the most important piece was the purpose and the meaning. Like I, I truly thought my purpose was to die from my eating disorder in that time. Um, and then in, even in the drug and alcohol world, my purpose was to be the party girl or whatever. And and only through recovery did I realize, like, I should use this to help people. I should use this, this knowledge I have. This is the only thing that has come naturally and easily to me is to go through this nonsense that I can use this to help other people. Um, and through that process is how I found this. Like, if I didn't go through this, I don't, I don't know what I would be doing. So I'm really, really grateful that I've had this process to kind of find myself. 
have you ever questioned your recovery? Because that's, again, I'm listening to everything that you're saying. At a point, I thought my purpose was to die from my eating disorder. I was so entrenched in it, all these things. So do you ever get, do you ever question it at this point? Yeah, no, I never question it. Um, And I, I remember... I remember saying to one client, like, I've worked so hard to get to this point that there's no reason that I would ever jeopardize any of that. Um, So regardless of what my weight is or how I look in something or whatever, like that would never trigger this, this, this life I've created for myself. But I was listening to your podcast and, and the one, my first client that I didn't I was right out of graduate school. I got this woman and I didn't realize she had an eating disorder until she was there. And she was telling me all these things, all these eating disorder thoughts. And I went home and cried for like two hours. The next morning I woke up, I was fine. I saw her, it was fine. But I, that first day was really overwhelming for me. Um, But besides that, I have not questioned anything since then. And by the way, you went through the natural process of it. You experienced it, you cried to release the experience and moved forward. It's, it's, we're not holding any secrets, Kate. You and I don't have the secret to, you know, what's the secret answer? It's really feeling the emotions and moving through them. Otherwise, it just keeps building and building and building. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. If I had, and I think that was a big moment for me as becoming like a recovered professional, because if I had beaten myself up about that, of like, oh, you shouldn't feel this way. Like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like you're never going to be able to be a good therapist. Um, I could have hidden that and and gotten myself all worked up and, and kind of spiraled out from there. So I think, yeah, you're right. Feeling the emotion, coping with it and moving forward. I remember that I, when I used to run groups at residential programs and clients would say to me every once in a while, like, do we trigger you, Karen? And when I say clients, I'm talking clients with all different versions of eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, compulsive overeating, you know, what, whatever it is. And they would say, do we trigger you? And I would say to them, I never, ever again want to think that anything that's happening in my life can be resolved through an eating disorder behavior. No, I am not triggered. I never want to pretend something's not happening by blocking it out through an eating disorder behavior. Yeah, I think if anything, it kind of motivates you in the opposite direction. You're like, oh my God, like I this obviously isn't working for all of these people. And I remember um, Anna Kowalski, who I know you know really well, who's lovely. I think Anna Kowalski is going to be named on this podcast series like a thousand times because we all love her so much. Get her on here. Yeah, get her on here. I love her. Um, she said to me, like, when we were first training in treatment, she was like, they're all smarter than you. Like all the clients are smarter than you. And I was like, okay. (laughs) She was like, so just remember that. Like they're going to outsmart you, but like we have to remind them of these things. And, and I think that that's the truth. Like that it's not about like us having the secret. It's not about us like knowing all these things. It's about us doing the work and like working through it. And, and I think that that's just, it's just so important. Mm -hmm. I also want to go back when you said you you at one of one purpose of the eating disorder was to die what is it like for you to work with a population with such a high mortality rate yeah it's a great question um i think that i have walked alongside people that have wanted to die or that's been the goal or i've been really afraid or going to die i've had a couple clients that have passed away um, and it is devastating. It's devastating. Cause like, there's nothing that step that makes me or you or any of the other recovered people we know enlightened or superior or whatever. Like there's nothing that separates us. Like I could have easily died. Um, but that shift in our thinking, it kind of like sa- saved us from that. And so I think I'm always hopeful and I'm always, 
always just trying to rack my brain for any gems I can kind of give to them because you never know what could kind of just click like that shoe moment for me with that recovery coach like you never know and so I, I just try to to give it my all as, as long as I can. I had a client say to me the other day, and I can't remember what she was referring to in the podcast, but she said, I listened to one of the episodes and something you said just shifted so much in my thought process. And then I thought to myself, Karen's been saying this to me for years. So it really is often about if you're ready to hear it, if you're if you're present enough to hear something, this client literally said to me, and, and again, I can't remember what she was referring to, but she said, you have been telling me this for years and it has literally just gone in one ear and out the other. And then I heard it on the podcast and I was like awestruck. And I thought, wow, that's, that's powerful. But that also goes to show how powerful an eating disorder is, how much people are missing in life when they're in their eating disorder mind. And that's also why I say kind of recovered still sucks. You either want to be fully recovered or actually that's just it. You want, I was going to say, or no, you want to be fully recovered because kind of recovered, you are still missing so much in life. You may physically be there, but you're not there because this client was pretty far along in her recovery process. Yeah. I, I think that um, that's so for the first part that you said is so funny. I had the same experience with the client. This was years ago. And I had been telling this person, I don't even remember what it was, but the same message, like every session, you know, two times a week, I'm banging her over the head, but this is this one gem. And I hear this other therapist tell her it during a meal. And later in our session, she goes, did you know so-and-so just told me this? Like, that makes so much sense. I'm like, I've been saying this for months. <laughs> so yeah, I think you're right. Like we, people in eating disorders and their active disorder are living in a fog. They're living in a world of gray. They're living in this muted life with no no shades of color like they're just in this muted place and so i i totally agree with you that being partially in recovery is is like managing a tiger in your in your kitchen for the rest of your life you know what i mean like it's not authentically living it's managing and it constantly needs this um this upkeep and so yeah being recovered is, is real is true freedom it's true freedom in life and I, I had this one client who said to me if I have to manage this for the rest of my life I'm, I'm gonna end up ending my life and that sounds really extreme but I I could resonate with that because of how trapped I felt in that place so I, I completely agree I I don't think it sounds extreme um unfortunately suicide is really high with clients with eating disorders. So you're not saying anything extreme. You're saying the truth. Suicide is real and it happens a lot with eating disorders. I always felt like I was living with a glass wall in front of me. I always felt like I could see life I could see what other people were doing. I might even be in the same car with some of these people, but there was a glass divider between me and everything else. And so even when I was in a room filled with people, I felt alone. And it was a loneliness that hurt to my core. That's what I was thinking of when you were talking about, like, it's just this, like, life is muted, right? And that's not a way, it's not a way I want to go through life. Yeah. And in fact, it's, an, it's a way that I can't go through life. Yeah. And I think, you know, people like you and me that resonate with that too muchness, like being so separated from life is what nearly killed me. Um, <clears throat> and thinking about it for others too. Yeah, I agree with that. I never thought about it in a, a glass wall, but I thought about it as a cage. Like I was with everyone, but my cage was in the middle of the room and I was just sitting in there, um, unable to kind of connect. 
You know what that makes me think of right now is that anybody who's listening to it that is struggling with an eating disorder, I really want them to think, what is your metaphor? How are you living? Are you living like Kate in a cage? Are you living like I was with a glass divider? And is that satisfying? By the way, some people may say yes. Not everybody wants to recover. And that's a truth as well. What I often say, though, is that it gets confusing because they do want to recover from the the existential pain they're in, but they confuse that as, I don't want to recover from the eating disorder, but I do want to be out of pain. I do want to have more confidence. I do want to not be so scared all the time. And so people do want to recover, but they're only looking at it from the body perspective or the behavior perspective. I've had many clients that don't want to give up binging. They don't want to give up purging. They don't want to give up restricting. So it's separating the two and saying, but do you want to get rid of the suffering? Let's talk about that. Let's start there. And then we'll start talking about the behaviors. I don't know if you've ever experienced that with clients. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think that I, I felt similarly to that of like, I wanted to give up the pain I was in and the exhaustion and the obsession of food was probably the biggest one I wanted to get rid of. But I didn't necessarily want to get rid of the behaviors that kept me in a smaller body or kept me whatever it was. And so I think that, looking at what is what is getting in the way what are the barriers to living the life you want to live and and that might be a, a life that is is quiet and more introverted and whatever and that's fine but what else are you missing and i think a lot of people are missing kind of the joy of life the the appreciation for life the gratitude that comes in life like the simple things that really are what make life life what that makes me think of a question. What are some memorable moments you've had in your life? And do you think you could have experienced them if you were still in the eating disorder? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that the moments that I've had that have been the most impactful have only been in recovery and beyond and being recovered. I don't remember most of my life in my eating disorder. It's kind of a common joke in my family of like, oh, that's my siblings will always be like, oh, that's when she was in her eating disorder. Like, Because <laughs> I don't remember like decade, like a decade. Um, and the moment, the best moments of my life, the moments that were like soul set on fire moments were the times where I was truly able to be present to notice all of the the like details and the textures and the colors of life. Um, and those things are totally missed when you're living in that fog. Actually, everything is missed. For those of you who heard in the first podcast, it's not just the good memories, it's the important memories. And important memories are not always great. I remember every bit of the end of my father's life. That was not a, cel a celebratory, excuse me, celebratory moment in my life, but it was so important, Kate. And if I had missed those last few months because I was in my eating disorder, I would be devastated. That's another purpose of the podcast. It's not just about being present for the good. It's not just about experiencing the good because that is not a realistic picture of life. You and I, all the listeners, we go through death, breakup, conflict, taxes, <laughs> bills, floods. We also go through celebrations, parties, love, marriage, whatever it is. But you've also heard me say, you can't mute the bad feelings and still experience the good feelings. You don't get that choice. So you're going to mute them all 
in the eating disorder. So in order to be fully recovered, you have to accept that you're going to feel them all and that's okay. Yeah. That's a really good point. I, when I first got sober, um, this man in a meeting and he was like this really intense kind of trying to shock people, I think a little bit, but he was, he said to us, like the first year he got sober, his wife died of cancer and both of his children were murdered. He's like, and I still didn't pick up a drink. And, and I was kind of like, well, you're out of your mind. Like, (laughs) what, what are you talking about? But I think that the horrific moments, the traumatic moments, the, and anything in between good, bad, indifferent. Like if we are so numbed out and so, so removed from reality, we aren't able to process them. We aren't able to be there for our family. We aren't able to be there for the people that matter to us. Um, and we aren't able to work through it. You know, if you weren't there for your father's death and five years later, you kind of emerge back into reality, like that would have been even more traumatic. Um, and obviously like, I don't want anything horrific to happen to anyone, but I think that by going through those seasons of, of pain in a recovered place, it is so much easier than going through it with an eating disorder. I think you said like, you're just adding problems on top of problems. And that's absolutely the case. Yep. And the other thing, oh, listeners, give me one second. Cause I, I know exactly where I was going. I can't believe I lost my thought. Everybody bear with me. We were talking about trauma. We we're talking about losing people in our lives. This is another thing, listeners. Life doesn't, <laughs> there's not always a script. Am I right? These things happen. Um, you know what? We're going to have to, I'm going to have to revisit that thought another time because it absolutely escaped me. So we're going to have to move on to another thought. My question for you is you had written something really interesting in your paperwork, and I'd love for you to describe it um, so everybody can hear. You talked about if the eating disorder took your life, your fingerprint would no longer be on this earth. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's my that's my favorite moment. Any client out there that knows me even remotely will remember this story. Um, but I had this moment where I happened to touch this mirror. This was in my early, early stages of recovery. And I saw my fingerprint on the mirror. And in that moment, I realized just what Karen just said of like, if I die from this, that story won't be told. And that story will be diminished to a poor white girl with an eating disorder, basically, you know, and, and that enraged me in a moment and gave me so much motivation and power and, um, like a drive to tell that story. Because if that story died, all of the things that happened to me wouldn't be able to be used to help others. And I think that we aren't walking this story alone. We're walking in someone else's footprints, you know, like my story is different than yours and your story is different than someone else's, but, but the, the themes are the same. And as long as I can walk in those footprints, like someone else can walk behind me. And so if that, if I passed away from my disorder, I was robbing the next person of those footprints. I have an image right now. Have you ever seen little children when they're walking on a beach and an adult has walked ahead of them and they're trying to stick their precious little feet in those little footprints in the sand? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's it. That's the image I just got. That's powerful, Kate. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that's that's what happened in that moment for me. And I think it's it keeps me going, you know. I also want to say that I remember what I was going to oh, say. Oh, good, good. So I appreciate everybody going along this journey with me. I think one of the things that makes the recovery process challenging is that as a result of being in an eating disorder, you also stunt your emotional development and your coping skills. And so, and I thought of that when you were saying, 
I experienced my father's death when it happened. I didn't wake up five years later and say, oh my God, I lost my father. So what happens is, is when behaviors start, development stops, meaning you stop understanding how to process things. You stop understanding how to go through conflict in a healthy way. You stop understanding how to handle disappointment, shame, embarrassment, hurt in a healthy way. So often clients start coming through the recovery process and they feel very young because they're in a way trying to navigate through an adult life, but with young coping skills because they never learned them. That's another thing that happens. I also say to clients, as an adult, you will learn new coping skills quicker than when you were a child. So it will happen, but they end up often saying, I still have the same kind of conflict with friends. Well, of course you do, because it's the same way you were dealing in relationship when you were 10 years old. I still have the same problems in my relationships. Of course you do, because you're still operating from the brain of a 17-year-old, which, which got stunted after you started purging at 17. So there's this developmental delay that then gets really uncomfortable when they're in the recovery process, because now they're more aware that they're in the world and they're not connecting with others or their ways are not working. And so there's so many different layers of the recovery process, which make it so challenging and so long. Yeah, definitely. We actually sent a client to your residential who this kind of sets the T for her of, of she was in her eating disorder like her whole life like dieting at a very young age and kind of going into this disordered behavior and and when she went to residential like all this trauma came out like she she had a lot of trauma and and she had never really she had never dealt with it and in a lot of ways she was still nine years old and in a lot of ways she was still dealing with these things that had happened to her so long ago because she had never dealt with them and you're right like dealing with something at nine is much different than dealing with some something as an adult and so I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice by numbing those things out and not facing them um, at whatever stage. Absolutely. Do you think you have or can pull from something that you learned as a result of, I'm going to say going through the recovery process to recovered, not as a result of having an eating disorder, because I don't want to say to people, have an eating disorder, you'll learn something great from it. But is there anything that you learned from the whole process that brought you to where you are now that you feel is important? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. It's so hard to think of just one. Um, but I think, I think that, I think being myself and finding my tribe is the thing that's the most has been the most influential lesson of that. Um, you know, when you're, when you're living in the world that you grew up in, it can feel like nobody's like you and nobody's going to get it and no one's going to help out and whatever. But when you look for those people and you show up authentically, you can find that tribe that fits you. Um, and so like, I would just say like the lesson that I definitely learned is like, find your people and that if you show up and you're yourself, those people will, will connect with you. That is a fabulous, fabulous lesson. Kate, it has been so wonderful having you on the show. We are going to have to start winding down. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end the show? No, I think this has been great. So as always, I end with a question. And one thing I've noticed is that almost everybody picks the same question. So I guess it's a good one. <laughs> My question for you is if somebody were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? <laughs> I love that question. I don't even remember what I wrote when you asked me that, that originally, but <laughs> they would probably say like, what's up with that crazy redhead? <laughs> <laughs> 
something like that. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, I love it. All right. What would wait, but tell me what yours would be. Um, this may be (laughs) somebody asked me this. I was doing a um. I was doing a mock interview and somebody asked me this question and like that, I came to my mind and I don't know, forgive me if this is too provocative to say on a podcast, but I just thought if someone was to write about me on a bathroom stall, it would just say for a good time, call Karen Lewis. And you know what, listeners, you can interpret a good time any way you want. That's all up to personal interpretation. I love that. I'm all about that. It came to me in a second. I didn't even, I didn't even have to be like, I was like, oh, for a good time. Call Karen. <laughs> Must be true then. So there, <laughs> so there, yeah, well, I know a lot of people are agreeing with this right now. I'm going to stop while I can because <laughs> this is going in a direction that I don't know if it's going to be appropriate for all listeners. So again, Kate, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. It was beautiful seeing your face. I haven't seen your face in a few years. So I am just honored that you took the time to do this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Karen. I so appreciate it. I so look up to you. So I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's another edition of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with all of you again next week and stay safe. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.